Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So one, uh, so yeah, so one strategy that I have maintained so far for the show, sort of in my own you know personal experience of doing it, is that I do not look at data for how many people are listening and uh, you know all all those sort of analytics and that sort of stuff that you, you hear people talk about or you, traditionally that you do look at and sort of obsess over in a sense. And the, the theory behind that is that to some extent, it just doesn't exert an influence on the kind of material that I'm going to put out there. I know, you know, what a quality you know, episode of this show looks like. Uh, I know when I'm hitting the mark that I want to hit and when I'm not and uh, getting feedback about which, uh, you know, uh, shows have lots of listeners and which ones don't or, you know, what whatever the, the trend is there that doesn't necessarily make an impact on the decisions that I'm going to make uh, and the quality that I am aiming for. And, really it's only going to serve to be some sort of emotional reaction based off of whatever my arbitrary expectations were for what that number should be, right? If it's, if the number of actual listeners is lower than whatever, you know, random number I selected is, you know, what I would be happy with you know, subconsciously, then, uh, then I'll be sad. And if the number is higher than that, then I'll be happy. And, but that doesn't really, that's not a meaningful signal. And the, points of what I should be doing is trying to reach the quality and consistency uh, that I'm looking for. And so that's sort of how my theory has gone. And uh, I think for a while, that was a pretty smart way to do it. I've actually been rethinking that though. And uh, the thing that I've been rethinking on that is that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a pretty goal-driven individual. And uh while there is no theoretical reason why those numbers would necessarily change the way that I do the show and this or that, having the goal of growth or certain thresholds or hitting this or that, I feel like will be something that's quite a motivating, uh, a motivating, just a motivational force for me. And, um, you know, that's something that's sort of come and go throughout the pandemic. I've found motivation harder than before the pandemic, um, partially because I think what was always motivating pretty much everything I did was just a natural curiosity about the world and people and what I'm up to and what they're up to and just the whole the whole thing of it and human behavior and, you know, how to sort of orchestrate, a, you know, career is it. And you know what? It's so much harder to be interested in the world when you're sitting here at home looking at your computer screen or your Netflix screen or this or that. And so my the strategies that worked well for motivation in the before times have not uniformly transported well to uh, the pandemic. And yeah, okay, maybe we've, you know, we're going on a year of it. So maybe I should have figured this out a little bit earlier. But I'm, I am, you know, doubling down on uh, just figuring out ways to, to get back to 
uh, a level that I want to be at in a way that works with how the world is going right now and where am I, I'm at right now. And this is just something that I've been thinking about and uh, am going to implement as a change to uh, you know, see what am I, uh, you know, where am I at? How do I get to a certain level? How do, how do I grow just a little bit at every opportunity and that sort of thing? And uh, use it as a motivational force and also like, look, let's, uh, let's, let's do it big. Let's, let's grow the audience. Let's take it seriously. The, this podcast exists, you know, it's, 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 uh, we're coming up on 50 episodes right now. So it certainly exists. Um, I would love to get to a hundred episodes by the end of the year, um, which would require, you know, uh, approximately an episode every week. Plus I, you know, somewhere around 10 weeks or something like that, where there's a double up and that sort of stuff. So it's like, you know, look, let's, let's get into it. Let's do it. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And I'm looking forward to seeing sort of just that, that change and how it plays out and everything. So anyway, my guest for this week is Nicholas Christakis. Um, and gosh, I mean, if there was one guy who just by virtue of his tone of voice, I was just going to believe whatever he said. It would probably be Nicholas here. Um, I've heard him on like Sam Harris podcast. He he was one of Sam Harris experts sort of during the the big months of the pandemic where it was really, you know, it's sort of heights of, of confusion and, and this and that. Um, but at any rate, gosh, I mean, you listen to the guy, it's, he's just got an incredible voice for, uh, for doing this stuff and for being a, an expert guest on, on whatever. And so, uh, his official title is Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science, Internal Medicine and Bioengineering. That's at Yale. He is an MD, PhD, MPH, Act, so it's not just the voice. He actually is an expert in a lot of stuff. Um, PhDs in sociology, uh, you know, MD, and then the uh, you know public health degree from uh, Harvard. So, at any rate, uh, you know, his his research has been a lot on uh, social networks and that sort of stuff. He actually had a an advisor uh, who I whose work I really like. Her name is Renee Fox. She actually died, um, I think, about a month before we recorded this this interview in late 2020. And um, her advisor was Talcott Parsons, who's someone I've been learning a lot about recently. Uh, been working on a, a writing project in which he's a central character, and, and he's basically this this really central figure in sociology in the 20th century. At any rate, not germane to this conversation necessarily, but um, sort of gives you an idea of the the lineage that he, he's from, uh, on, at least on the sociology side. But so anyway, it was uh, interesting to, uh, having heard him talk, you know, quite a bit about his expertise on the pandemic and, 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 that, and that sort of stuff in other contexts, it was interesting to hear him dig a little bit more into his own personal development and personal experiences. Uh, so it was a fun conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Without any further ado, here is Nicholas Christakis. So let's get into your story a little bit. One thing that I like to ask people to sort of start off is what was the first time that you can remember getting really excited about an idea? Where it just sort of grabbed and you're like, hey, I have to pursue this. I have to know more about this. Oh, goodness. I would I would say my whole life, even since I was a child. I mean, I, I wanted to be... Um, a scientist since I was a little boy. Uh, my father used to tell a story. My parents were both scientists, so maybe it's, you know, a made up just so story. But my father would tell the story that when I was born, uh, 
I was really struggling to lift my head because it, in my father's turn of phrase, I was searching for meaning. And uh, so, and, and I also had a sort of, you know, my mother was diagnosed with a terminal illness when I was six. And um, I was one of those kids who always wanted to be a doctor, uh, which I recognize is different than being a scientist, but you know, there's sort of a little can be related. And, um, and, and so, you know, in fact, all of my mother's sons became doctors, uh, you know, so, you know, as far as I can remember, I was always interested in science. I was always interested in ideas. I was always interested in um, exceptions to general cases, you know, so on the one hand, trying to make generalizations about the world, and then on the other hand, looking for times when those generalizations did not hold. Um, so, I, I can't pinpoint a, a time. I, I, um, I, I, in college, by the time I was a sort of a young adult, I was very lucky to have a sequence of, I mean, I, I had a sequence of jobs working as a carpenter, which I loved, but then I began to get jobs in laboratories and I was blessed to work with some very excellent uh, wet lab biological scientists, some neuroscientists actually, uh, in my early 20s. And then I also worked at a virology lab in Paris when I was 20, uh, actually studying coronavirus, as it turns out, a long time ago. And um, and I got the bug, you know, like I, I, I saw the thrill of discovery. And I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up so I don't wanna be too long-winded in answer to your questions. But if you have ever had the experience of, of making a scientific discovery, like of seeing something that as far as you know, no one has seen before, there's no other feeling like it. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, addictive. You know, you, you, if you have that experience, you want it again. And um, it's rare. I mean, I think it's very rare. Even in my own life, it's been rare that I have had that sense, oh my goodness, I'm seeing something that no one has seen before. But when it happens, it's just an unbelievable, unbelievable experience. And, um, and then you want it again. So anyway, I don't know. That would be my answer, I guess, to your question. So I can totally see you being very driven for that kind of thing from a young age. I think even a cursory inspection of your CV shows that there's lots of different ways in which you've sort of approached the world uh, of, of knowledge and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so I, I guess I'm curious when, so if you have this general inclination for understanding for, you know, looking at specific cases and being able to make generalizations, that whole process. Curiosity. Curiosity. Curiosity, I would say. You know, and many children, I would say curiosity is a natural state of childhood. You know, my wife is a, uh, an early educator and, and you know, I now have four children. I've raised four children. Uh, you know, children are curious. Actually, I think in many ways, it's just a question of nurturing their curiosity. But anyway, go on. I was going to generalize to curiosity, but go on. So yeah, th this deep-seated curiosity when did that start to take a sort of professionalized form? Was that always just, oh, I'm going to be a doctor and there's variations on that theme? Or, or did, it, did it, was there a point when it started to crystallize for you in undergraduate or, you know, uh, you know, like you said, in well, Paris, all that sort of stuff? Well, I mean, it took me a while in my 20s to sort of realize how one became a scientist, you know, like you as you go to college and then I went to medical school and then I did my PhD. So I had a sequence of education that finally ended when I was 33. But uh, so it took a while for me to figure out how one 
was professionalized, you know, into science. So I, I, in college, actually, originally, I wanted to study linguistics. I was very interested in the origins of language. And I spent a lot of time studying anthropology, actually. At, uh, I was at Yale at the time. I went to Yale in 1979, and I actually took a year off while I was there. So I didn't graduate till 1984. And um, I wanted to study linguistics. And um, but I was afraid uh, because I also wanted to go to medical school and I was worried that somehow linguistics, I mean, I was wrong. That was not a correct perception, but I somehow was worried that if I did that, it might affect my prospects of getting into medical school. And so very timidly, I, I moved my focus to biology and um, I was very interested in evolutionary biology. And I um, had a magnificent teacher whose name I'm blocking on right now, who really inspired me. And um, and so I, I, stu I studied biology. And as I mentioned earlier, I was working in these neuroscience labs and in this virology lab. So I was beginning to get some laboratory experience. And I went to medical school. And early on in medical school, I realized that medical training was just not adequate to be a scientist. Um, and it hadn't been for decades. In other words, in the heyday of medicine in the 50s, you had people who got MD degrees and that was enough training to um, you know, have a scientific career and do original science. But, but by the time I got to medical school in, in uh, 1984, that, that was long gone. You needed a PhD training. So I realized I needed to also get a PhD. And then the question became, which one? Um, so I would say, you know, I was in my, what, how old was I then? You know, early 20s, 23, 24 or something when I came to that realization that I needed to do something in a very formal way to get training. And frankly, I needed to get skills. Uh, you know, I needed to, you know, to, to know how to do something. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I don't know. Did I answer your question? I don't know if I did. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that, that takes it in a direction. So I guess where so it you started off with okay um i'm gonna do biology I'm gonna become uh an md and then i need this extra skill set cell skill set on top of it to be able to do scientific inquiry when did that link up with uh you know sort of your more sociological interests uh studying social networks working with renee fox uh when did that start to take shape well, I, um, I'm not sure if I did it again, if I would pick social sciences as my PhD. I mean, I'm very interested in social phenomena, but um, I could also have approached these social phenomena, for example, from the direction of evolutionary biology. Um, and it was a set of idiosyncratic things that happened to me that, um, led me in the path to get a PhD in sociology and then uh, in, in social science and then specifically sociology, because even within the social sciences, I could have picked economics or psychology or anthropology. I had a, a lot of connections and a lot of affinity for anthropology. Um, also psychology. My, my mother had trained as a PhD in physical chemistry in the, in the sixties, but then went back to school to get a PhD in, in psychology, for example, before she died, she died when I was 25. And, uh, so, you know, I had a lot of familiarity with different kinds of social sciences. And I picked sociology actually mostly for serendipity because I uh, had met Renee Fox, who, who just died, by the way, at the age of 92 a couple of months ago. 
and was a lifelong friend of mine, a remarkable woman. And um, I, I picked sociology in part because I had read some stuff of Renee's actually as a medical student. And when time came for me to get PhD training, I went to meet with her and um, I liked her. And I, my mother had just died. So I think there may have been some transference as well, which is another whole serendipitous thing. And, um, and um, you know, I decided to go to the University of Pennsylvania where I actually could get a dual, I could do my clinical training as a house officer uh, and segue directly to a PhD program. It was a, I was able to arrange and package that. And, and, and honestly, that's why I picked sociology. Now it, it turns out it was good for me because as a sociologist, I had the for good fortune of being mentored by a statistician by the name of Paul Allison who taught me a set of tools uh, to, called survival analysis or event history analysis that were incredibly useful to me early in my career. He was a very clear thinker, very clear teacher, magnificent teacher. And then also while getting the PhD in sociology, I learned about, I had my first introduction to social networks, which would eventually change my life. Uh, you know, but I, I didn't know it at the time. You know, I just took a class in, in you know, we were just taught networks, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, but that knowledge was in the background so that when uh, the moment presented itself to, to think more deeply about networks, I don't know, five or 10 years later, I was prepared. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, I think, I think um, I certainly could be doing what I'm doing now without an MD. So when I, when I advise young people who are thinking about whether they should get an MD PhD or just a PhD, I generally tell them not to get the MD unless they affirmatively want to care for patients because it's a huge commitment. You know, it's four years in medical school and then a minimum of three years of clinical training, seven years of your life, basically as a prisoner, right? It's a carceral kind of experience to be a, a training for medicine. You have no freedom. You work 80 hours a week or more. Um, you do what you're told, you know, you show up. It's like being in high school. Being in medical school is like being in high school. You know, it's not like being a graduate student at all. It's the total opposite of that. And, uh, and those are crucial years in your life in your 20s, right? Very important years in your life. So unless you actually wanna care for patients, I advise against an, an MD PhD. So in my case, the question is, could I be doing what I'm doing if I hadn't gotten the MD? And in, in many ways, yes. You know, I could have been studying the evolution of human sociality, which is a central theme of my interests having gotten a PhD in evolutionary biology, having never trained in medicine, you know, I could have arrived, let's say at the same place. And, but there, you know, having trained as a doctor is a part of my biography. I mean, it was a very important part of my life and I, I don't know if I would easily give it up. So I have a complicated feelings about medical training. Yeah, yeah. So I'm interested. I'm interested to dig into that. So you were, uh, if correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you were a hospice doctor from 1995 to 2001, and that was on Chicago's South Side. And uh, so I'm interested because that was also the time when your first book came out, uh, Death Foretold. So what what did that period of time look like? How did because that, that does feel sort of disparate from the other, you know, especially the things you've gone on to do uh, as a professor and all that sort of stuff. What role did that play in your perspective as an academic? Well, first of all, I, 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 uh, I continued to see patients until about 10 years ago now. So I stopped seeing patients in, uh, uh, I don't know, 2012 or 
10 or something like that. I don't remember the precise date. And I, I was a, I, and I continued to practice hospice medicine even after I moved from the University of Chicago in 2001 to Harvard. And I moved to Harvard in 2001. And then I left Harvard and came to Yale in 2013. So I, and I stopped seeing patients like two or three years before I left Harvard. So around whenever that was. So I did see patients for a long time. It wasn't the primary identity. My primary identity was as a research scientist. I ran a laboratory, but it's very common for physician scientists to spend 20% of their time seeing patients, which was what I was. I was a physician scientist. And so I did spend some time doing that. And in particular, in, between the period 95 to 2001, I was a home hospice physician. I was seconded to a hospice at Chicago called Horizon Hospice. And, um, and I, uh, on Saturdays, I would go on home visits to patients. I had a sort of geographic catchment area that I was responsible for. And I would visit patients on the south side of Chicago. So I did that for six years. Um, but there was always a parallel between, there was an organic kind of evolution in my intellectual interest that was also connected to my clinical work at that stage of life. So the, the sequence of things that happened was, I can, t I can lay out for you the, the intellectual sequence. So first of all, one thing that I think is very important if you're a young person, I think, I think mastering skills is important, especially early in your career. Being able to do something is very important. Uh, but being, and, and being disciplined and focused is important, but so is being broad, like, you know, educating yourself about adjoining fields or even some, you could do a little levee flight, you know, like a bird searching for prey on a beach, you know, you explore a little area and then you fly, hop a long distance and explore another area. And that's sort of how I think ideas, you know, you should pursue. So I was always thinking five years ahead, like, okay, I'm going to spend five years doing this kind of work. Then what's the next thing? And I, I'll tell you the five, there've been five year periods for my whole career, basically, in which I would deeply explore something for five years, all the while waiting for what would be the next topic. And then as soon as that I was ready, I would make a switch when I figured I had done what I could do in this area. So I'll tell you the sequence. I, my PhD dissertation was on prognosis. And I, um, and, and that clearly was a reaction to my experience growing up with a terminally ill parent who was, you know, as a child, I was the central question of my life was how long would my mother live? Would she live or die? When would she die? So my whole childhood was consumed with prognosis. So it's not at all surprising that my PhD, you know, that was the topic I picked. But during that period, I also became very morally committed to the care of the dying, again, in part because of my childhood experience. But I became more and more aware of the fact that in the United States, we take abysmal care of people who are dying. 50% of Americans die in pain. Uh, most Americans die in a, in a healthcare facility, even though most would prefer to die at home. Uh, there, the the uh, many patients do not have their wishes respected near the end of life regarding, for example, whether they wish to be resuscitated or not. So we just did a very bad system, and I, and I became I, I developed a kind of a moral commitment to improving the care of the dying. So my first body of work in the early 1990s, first five years, I published a set of papers and the book you mentioned on prognosis, the, 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 the role of prognosis in, in, in medicine. Why and how do doctors prognosticate? How can we improve prognostic performance? Uh, how can we make doctors better forecasters? And in so doing, enhance their ability to care for patients. Because if you don't know what's going to happen, you'll make stupid choices therapeutically. And as part of that work, then I became very interested in, in how to optimize the care of the dying. 
more generally? How do we improve decision-making in intensive care units? How do we enhance hospice care? And so then the next five years, after I did five years on prognosis, I did five years on, um, on, on uh, end-of-life care. And I published a whole broad set of papers on hospice care. I came to England and I met Dame Cicely Saunders. I came to St. Christopher's Hospice a couple of times. I had a lot of in powerful life experiences at that stage of my career. I was clinically active. That was the time when I was at the University of Chicago, the 95 to 2001 period. And, uh, and uh, you know, was uh, uh, really thinking deeply about how to increase or optimize the care of the dying. And during this period, my wife came to me and she said, you know, I'm worried you're getting a little depressed. You're, you're just studying death all the time. That's all you do is you talk about death, you study death, you care for dying people. I was only, how old was I? I was, uh, you know, in my early 30s. And she's like, you know, you might want to give some thought to doing something different. And I had just come back from England. And uh, I had uh, visiting uh, St. Christopher's Hospice. And uh, one of the senior physicians there, his first name is Nigel. I'm blocking on his last name right now. He um, told me this this sort of jokey line that the Brits use to describe the uh, the uh, Bureau of Vital Statistics, which is that they call it hatch, match, and dispatch. You know, birth, marriage, and death. Hatch, match, dispatch. And uh, so there I was studying dispatch, and I'm trying to think of what I can do next. So I thought, why don't I study match? You know, why don't I study the, the benefits of marriage, the health benefits of marriage? And it was connected to the end of life care because of the widowhood effect. So I, the widowhood effect is the fact that when the increased probability of the recently bereaved to die. So when your partner dies, your risk of death goes up. It's been noted for hundreds of years as a very interesting intellectual history. So I thought, why don't I study the widowhood effect? And uh, there were some questions that were unanswered there. I thought I could make a contribution. I had the data skills that were uh, coming on board. It was a way to get me out of studying just death. It, I could study social connection. I had the PhD in sociology, so I was like beginning to think about social relationships and institutions. You know, marriage is an institution. So, so I began to make that switch. And then I spent five years publishing papers on um, the widowhood effect and uh, kind of pushing that ball forward a little bit. Published, I don't know, a dozen papers on this, different kinds of questions and different kinds of approaches, and we can talk about them. But anyway, that was in the past. And it was during that period that um, that elsewhere in the sciences, people were beginning to revisit social networks. So towards the end of the 1990s, social network studies actually had been started in sociology at the end of the 19th century by Georg Simmel. And every odd number decade since, there had been big advances in the study of social networks. And interestingly, this is one rare case where sociology actually was a prime mover and sociological ideas migrated to the physical sciences and the biological sciences. So for example, when biologists wanted to compute the protein network, what you know, what were the important proteins in a protein network, they they used techniques invented by sociologists to study, you know, who were the central people in social networks. And of course they improved and perfected them. So some papers began to appear on social networks in the end of the 1990s. And I had begun to think a little bit about networks again for various reasons. And I realized of course that the the widowhood effect that I had been studying, these little dyadic, were dy simple cases of networks, like a man and a woman or, or a gay couple, two men or lesbian couple, two women, were just a, a dyad, which was a simple case of networks. So I decided the next five years I would spend studying social networks, and that coincided with my move to Harvard 
2001. And that period of my life, that changed my life because then uh, pretty much since then, I have mostly studied human social interactions and networks, although every five years I have still made a shift. So the first five years were spent studying the function of social networks, doing primarily observational studies. And then I shifted into studying the the evolutionary biology of human social networks. And I did a, a set of papers on the genetics and um, and evolutionary biology of human social interactions. So we had a, a whole bunch of papers in PNAS on the on friendship and natural selection, on correlated genotypes, on on uh, on the physiology of friendship, and uh, and then I began to become interested in the not just the function or the origins, but the structure of human social networks. And then I spent five years doing that. And you may know we had a whole set of papers, and then that led to another whole set of ideas on what how could we how could we modify or manipulate, control the function of social networks. And that led to field trials in all kinds of settings around the world and, and our development of social software that we use to do online experiments, which led to a whole set of papers. And well, we our first paper in Nature was on, uh, on, uh, uh, on the social networks of the Hadza, which fit in with our interest in the evolutionary biology and deep functions of social networks. But then we published a set of papers again in nature and PNAS and elsewhere looking at um, how to manipulate social networks using experiments to test ideas about how they function. And then that led to interest now most recently in artificial intelligence, which is how do we, how can we use AI agents? So if you create a social system of real people, if you create a hybrid system of humans and machines, how can we equip the machines with simple forms of artificial intelligence that change the social dynamics of the people among each other, not just the people to the machine relationship, but the person to person relationship and on and on and on. So, you know, so, and I have new ideas of where to go, but you know, so this is, I don't know, that's, I know it's, I'm talking too much, but you know, it's like you're asking it's anyway. So that's interesting. So, so let me see if I get the try and derive the the logic of it, right? So you're basically you uh, pick a direction to go, you go deep into that, and then sort of as you as you're you know going deep into it, on coming back on the on the way up, you start to pick your head up, look around at what everyone else is doing, what the technological advances are, what your own interests. As you're going deep, you spend ten percent of your time thinking about how this depth speaks to other fields or yeah. as part of that 10% of your time attending to what's happening in other fields so that you can see what would be a shrewd move next that interests you. I'm not talking in a mercenary way, like, you know, how do I follow the latest intellectual fad? I'm talking about how do you make a contribution based on what you're doing and what you know? I'm sorry, yeah. go on. Yeah, no. That, so uh, that, that sounds about right. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know what. When did you know that the sort of public-facing component uh, was 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 something you wanted to do with your career and to to write books and to not just discover new things and share them with other people who are in the business of discovery, but be able to convey those ideas to the broader the broader population? Well, at some point in my thirties, I became aware of the distinction between you know being a scientist and being a public intellectual. And I kind of thought that, you know, in my 60s, maybe I would kind of, I mean, I was still in my 30s. So I thought maybe 30 years later, I would, you know, sort of begin to try to publish articles in 
op-eds or something or magazines. I, I, I didn't have a good sense of what it meant to do, meant to be or do actually. But, you know, I was a consumer of ideas, you know, for example, by Robert Coles, for instance, who was a prominent public intellectual, was a psychiatrist writing about children. He won the Pulitzer Prize. He was a very influential thinker. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I was well, like, I was sort of curious about like, what was that like? But I had no intention of doing anything of the kind as a younger person. And um, I wanted to write books, but that was not my primary uh, motivation. And as it turns out, I've written a book every 10 years in addition to publishing my scientific papers. But this past year, I wrote an extra one unexpectedly because of the pandemic. And uh, I actually have another one that is on schedule for 10 years from now. And I interrupted briefly to do the, the book on the pandemic, Apollo Zero. But um, so that was not like book writing was not like a part of my plan, let's say necessarily. But what happened was in 2007, we published a paper on obesity in social networks. And that, that whole story itself is a sequence of chance favoring the prepared mind. Because what had happened was when I went to Harvard in 2001 and was beginning to think about how to study networks, we needed data. Data didn't really exist at the time. And so I thought I was gonna have to collect data from scratch panel a cohort of people, map their relationships and follow them forward. And through a sequence of serendipitous events, I met with some people at the Framingham Heart Study and had a chance conversation with a woman. I was very interested. The Framingham Heart Study was started in the 40s and had over 16,000 participants by the time I arrived at their offices in 2001 or so. And those people had been followed basically without loss to follow up for decades, which is miraculous. And they did this in a number of ways. They enfranchised their research subjects to feel like they were contributing to science. Those people were motivated to reappear. But I was very curious about how they kept their subjects. They had no loss to follow up. And I, I meant to, went to meet with a woman who was responsible for the operations of reminding, reminding people to come back every four years to be examined for this longitudinal cohort study, this famous Framingham Heart Study. And she told me about the existence of these documents that they had created for decades, that whenever the subject came in, they asked the subject, who are you married to? Who, uh, who are your siblings? Where do you work? Where do you live? Who's a close friend of yours that will know where you are in four years if we can't find you? And as soon as she told me this, I was like, oh my God. And, and coupled with the realization that they were doing a geographically based sampling so that when I said I worked in this location, other Framingham Heart Study participants also work. My coworkers were also part of the study. Or when I said Susie is my best friend, unbeknownst or beknownst to me, Susie was also a participant in the Framingham Heart Study. So I suddenly realized that the data that we were hoping to create already existed in these archival records and that these people's clinical information about their weight and their smoking behavior and their clinical status, and all this stuff had been collected. And the challenge was to computerize those records. So we shifted direction, James Fowler and I, my long-term collaborator at that period of my life, to try to, uh, to computerize those records. And, and then we were trying to figure out, we wanted to look at the spread of phenomena in social networks across time. We had to invent some statistical methods to do that. The, those were early days then, there wasn't good software. And, and we had to pick an outcome to study and we picked obesity for methodologic reasons, namely it was objectively ascertained the patients were weighed by a nurse. So we didn't wanna have, we knew we were gonna to have to defend a lot of novelty in our work. We didn't wanna to have to defend self-reports, you know, like people, our critics would say, well, 
you know, the patients were just reporting that they were smoking or not smoking. Uh, you know, how do you, or, or you measured their happiness by using a psychometric scale, but you know, how valid is that or whatever? So we pick, or, we pick a weight because they were weighed. And furthermore, weight it has a continuous distribution, which had some appealing statistical advantages in the setting that we were doing. Unlike, for example, dichotomous outcomes like smoking or not smoking. That's why we picked weight. So we do the weight paper five and a half years after we have the ideas, and it took forever to complete this project. We pub the papers public. Actually, it's not published. Five and a half years after we start the project, we get our first data, and then it's published like a year and a half later in the New England Journal, and very unexpectedly, it was very popular. And um, I had the unexpected experience of that my work was featured on the front page of the New York Times. Like, mm. I came out of my house the next morning, and it was a newspaper there, and like below the fold, there was like a little article about the paper that you, we had done. Yeah, and that that serendipity you know, affected the course of my career because then what happened is I was approached by book agents that said, would you like to write about this, a book? And um, and I hadn't thought about doing that. And uh, and we, we looked into it, James and I, and then we decided to write a book. I had written a book, a previous book, with the University of Chicago Press, Death Foretold on Prognostication, but I hadn't thought about, that was a sort of academic book. I hadn't thought about writing like a popular book. And then but we decided to do it and that was the book connected and then that you know that then led to a sort of different aspect of my career earlier than i had expected yeah so i i can kind of see maybe a a trend here which is that there's sort of a, a tension between if you were to reconstruct the optimal path to get through the key points that you've been through you could come up with a more efficient uh, way of, of doing it. Like you're saying, do you really need an MD? You know, like well, you know, those, those sort of questions. Um, but it sounds like a lot of your, um, like you were talking about with how do you manage to specialize in something while also being connected to other, other disciplines. It sounds like a lot of the sort of zigging and zagging was, you know, you would, you would be able to make connections to areas of knowledge that you wouldn't have expected to find a connection. And it sounds like that's where a lot of uh, some of those aha discovery moments uh, come Absolutely. We, we least expect them. Absolutely. And that requires requires uh, disciplined habits of mind, right? It, it requires you to, if you don't already have it, to cultivate an open mind, right? To be receptive. Mm. And it requires you to allocate time as well. For example, when I was at the University of Chicago, they had this very famous so-called workshop system, these you know weekly seminars that obeyed certain norms that are phenomenal of like vigorous exchange of ideas across disciplines, very interdisciplinary, very challenging, but in a supportive way, I wouldn't say in a hostile way. Um, but you have to have fortitude and you have to you have to have breadth, right? You have to be able to talk to people who use different jargon or have different methods or different ideas or different assumptions actually is often the hardest thing. And um, and I, I forced myself as a young scholar, as an assistant professor to go to workshops that were near to, but outside my own field, just to hear people saying stuff, you know, just to be curious and interest and interested in stuff. And, uh, you know, so if you're a sociologist, you know, why not go to the evolutionary biology seminar? You know, many of the times they'll be talking about ecology or, or uh, I don't know, mollusks and you're not interested, but once in a while they'll talk about bird song or they'll talk about primate sociality or they'll talk about uh, uh, gene environment interactions 
or they'll talk about all kinds of other cool stuff that's highly relevant to the social sciences. And, you know, you'll say, oh, I better go read about that. And, uh, you know, you allocate some time to that. It's very important. Uh, so it's, it's, it's habits of mind. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, the other thing that I find very helpful as a habit, at least as I got more advanced in my career to associate professor and later, actually, even as an assistant professor, is not to be intimidated by students that were smarter than me. This is very important uh, because, and, and, and actually this I read in a, um, I, I somehow stumbled on some article, I don't know, maybe it was in Harvard Business Review or somewhere. I read an article about different managerial styles and there was a managerial style that uh, one of them is to manage down, you know, is to look down on your employees and think your job is to control your employees. And another strategy is to manage up and to think your job is to in, is to shield your employees from the rest of the world and and work up to you know the the people that are above you or the or the organizational structures or whatever that are above you. So um, and so and then I read about I was very influenced by um, a number of you know sort of famous scholars that I bumped into and was talking to them about how they managed their careers and so on and I I, I sort of realized that. Like the, the factory model where the foreman became a foreman because they used to be a lineman and operated a lathe. And now that was seen as because they knew how to operate a lathe, then they would oversee 10 lathe operators. And that meant that in order to oversee lathe operators, you, the, the people working for you needed to have a knowledge that was a subset of your knowledge, that that was not the right model for me that actually what I really wanted is to hire people to work for me or in my lab who extended my reach, who knew things I didn't know, who could do things I couldn't do. But to, to do that, you have to be as much as possible undefensive, right? So I love it when my students know things I don't know. I love it when they're smarter than I am because they teach me, right? They extend my reach. And as a, as a assistant or as an associate professor or full professor, I could I could send a, a, bright, a brilliant graduate student to go spend three weeks studying a topic and come back and brief me for an hour. I mean, that's an incredible luxury. Only the president of the United States has that luxury, right? Where all these people go out and do all this stuff and digest the material down to, you know, whatever. And uh, so it was just, and I, and I read this thing once, um, uh, um, 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 Nathan Mirvold, who became a billionaire, he left uh, Cambridge, he became a billionaire to work, uh, joining Microsoft early on. I've since had the, the good fortune of meeting him once or maybe twice. And um, when I was an assistant professor, I read about what he did with, one of the things he did with his wealth, which struck me as exactly what I would do if I was a billionaire, is he, he would hire, for example, an Italian teacher to fly with him on his jet or on his plane and teach him Italian while he was transiting from point A to point B. And I thought, oh my God, what a luxury to have a, a, a phenomenal tutor who you just pay to like teach you stuff as you were otherwise, you know, having useless time or, or he got interested in paleontology and he, you know, funded digs, you know, cause uh, he could, you know, and then the proviso was that if, you know, I'm going to support your dig, then, you know, tag you along. Put up with me. What? Yeah, tag along a little bit. Yeah, I mean, what an, you know, hire a professional paleontologist to teach you paleontology. I mean, this, I read this and I was like, wow, I wish I was a billionaire because that's exactly, these are the, these are the things I would do, you know, if I, if I, you know, had that kind of wealth. And so, uh, and so, and so basically that's what graduate students do for me, you know, uh, in the lab is that, you know, they, 
they uh, bring skills to the laboratory that I don't have. And so, um, so I guess, you know, I, another skill that's important to cultivate, you see, I think in addition to openness and, and uh, a disciplined, discipline to force yourself to be exposed to things that are outside your field is also an undefensiveness, mm. which is hard, right? It's very hard because we're in the racket. You and I are in a racket where very small differences in IQ make a big difference, right? And we're constantly comparing ourselves to each other, right? Where this is the business we're in. And, um, and it's very difficult in this business to not feel jealous or to uh, not feel threatened. Uh, and so I think it takes a lot of effort to, um, to master that. And I think it's important because you become a better scientist when you, um, when you do that. One of my favorite photographs, of course, is of all those geniuses at the 100 years ago with uh, that famous photograph of uh, some assemblage of physicists where there's Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg and, and Marie Curie, the only woman, you know, I don't know if you know the photograph, you know this famous photograph, it's a no, black no. and white photograph, they're seated, I forgot, it's a very famous event, and, uh, and Dirac, you know, and uh, there were all these physicists that were there, and um, and they held, and they fed, I'm sure they competed with each other. Of course they did, but they they learned from each other, right? And I think that is crucial. It's yeah. absolutely crucial is to position yourself so you can learn even from the people with whom you're ostensibly competing. Love all that. All right, last eight minutes. I want to talk about uh, Apollo's arrow. So uh, incredible accomplishment. You managed to turn out a book between March and, and August of this year. Um, I'm sure part of the story is that, you know, you didn't need to convince the publisher of the, the timeliness and, you know, how it's in their best interest to get it out as soon as possible. And, you know, you're also an accomplished author and have expertise and, and all that sort of stuff. But I want to sort of unpack the process. What exactly, what was the moment where you're like, okay, I need to stop whatever it is I'm doing and write a book as a response to going on, as, as, to what's going on. Well, I had I had finished a book which I thought was my best book to date. Uh, I was enormously proud of Blueprint: The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, and it was a book in which I try to advance an argument about how natural selection has shaped not just the structure and function of our bodies, and not just the structure and function of our minds, but also the structure and function of our societies. Now. I'm not the first one to advance this idea by any means. Even Darwin considered this a long time ago, and E.O. Wilson and many others. But, but I do I did try to make a contribution in that book and 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 advance the conceptualization and thinking about this topic and and um, and bring a lot of my own research on this topic to bear in that book. And as I mentioned earlier, I have in mind another book I was going to write for ten years from now, which I had begun already, and. Um, because my books have appeared on uh, on the on the on, on 1999 and 2009 and 2019, you know, oh, years ending in nine, and then what happened was um, the pandemic struck, and um, the story is this. I mean, obviously, I, I mean, I don't think I'm being immodest to say I, I'm an expert in contagion. I mean, I have been, you know, I've been thinking about contagion a lot. We'd studied the contagion of germs. We'd studied social contagion. Studied social networks. Coronaviruses too, like you said. Yeah, actually, but of course that wasn't to, to bear. <laughs> and I, and I uh, have a master's in public health as well, which we didn't mention, which I got while I was in medical school. So I had some exposure to epidemiology, and I knew everything I needed to know 
I had taken the history of epidemics. I, you know, I was familiar with this literature as well. And uh, I had this longstanding collaboration with some Chinese scientists uh, from the Hong Kong University and the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And um, we had been using phone data in China to study human social interactions. For example, if there's an earthquake, there's an exogenous shock, and uh, we could use this this exogenous shock, we could use it to um, uh, to study um, to uh, to study who's important to you. Because, for example, when the earthquake struck, we could see who did the people call first. Okay, you have all these people you're calling. We could reason that actually the people you call first after an earthquake might be very important people to you, and other similar things we've been using the phone data for. And and so I had this established collaboration with this Chinese group of Chinese scholars, Jason Jia and Jan Min Jia uh, in Hong Kong and uh, and their colleagues. And uh, so when the pandemic started, I was just reading the news of what was happening in China in January, but then I spoke to my co-authors and we decided to work together to, to see if we could make a contribution in understanding what was happening. And as a result, beginning and towards the end of January, I was paying very careful attention to what was happening in China. And it was actually very exciting for us because we started working in the middle of January and we submitted the paper to Nature on February the 18th. And that paper was published in April. And it was like being a graduate student again, like I was pulling all-nighters. Uh, I would be working you know, while they were sleeping on the other side of the world. And uh, then I would send the work to them and they would send it back to me. And you know, we were very, it was you know, like, like everyone, I mean, it's widely understood now, like the whole scientific world reoriented itself to COVID. And it was, it is still a very exciting time to, it's always an exciting time to be a scientist, but it, you know, if you have something to say about COVID, that's especially exciting right now. And um, so, so I, uh, uh, so I began to pay attention as a result of that to what was happening in China. And by the end of January, I was convinced this would be a serious worldwide pandemic, in part because all of my attention was focused there. And I began to redirect about half my lab to study COVID topics. Ultimately, probably three quarters of my lab now is working on COVID stuff. And, um, uh, and then because of this, I, I, was, I was aware that on January the 25th, the Chinese promulgated rules that required 930 million people to stay home, to be at home. And so I was like, oh my God, you know, a billion people have been put under home confinement. You know, the Chinese obviously saw in the virus a sufficient threat that they detonated a social nuclear weapon to stop it. Yeah. And this really got my attention. And meanwhile, however, in the United States, Nobody was alarmed, you know, and I was like, how could this be? You know, it's clearly going to be a serious respiratory pandemic, a once in a century event. It was plain as day to me by the end of January. I won't say it was plain beginning of January, but by the end of January, it was obvious. But I, nobody seemed alarmed or concerned here in the United States. I mean, other experts were. Tony Fauci was writing about respiratory pandemics when I was in elementary school. I'm sure he was, you know, properly briefed. And... Um, and people, experts in the CDC and many other epidemiologists that I was talking to, like Mark Lipschitz, for example, at Harvard, he knew what was going to happen. Trevor Bedford, who I didn't know at the time, but in Seattle, you know, he knew what was going to happen. And um, so, and then Italy happened in February when in Lombardy, when there was the collapse of the system there. 
And still in the United States, people weren't taking it seriously in my view. And so what happened was I had at the time had a sort of small, not small, I had Twitter followers. I had like 50,000 or 40,000 Twitter followers. And I said, you know, I'm just going to start writing, you know, like Twitter threads with like Epi 101, you know, like basic information about the virus. And there was, a, I found that there was a lot of hunger for information and that lots of people were following these threads and people started following me and, and giving me ideas about other, could you, what can you tell us about this? And so I started writing all these threads. And then in the middle of March, our government still had been utterly incompetent, beginning at the White House, but not just at the White House. I mean, a lot of Democratic figures were also asleep at the switch. And I, I, uh, I, I thought I, I should write a book about this because I wanted to help people understand what was happening and what was going to happen. And um, I have I had an established relationship, of course, with an editor in a publishing house at Little Brown. And actually, she contacted me and she said, "You know, would you be interested in writing a book? Your Twitter threads are very informative. Would you be interested in writing a book about coronavirus?" And I said, "You know, funny you should mention that. I actually have been thinking that myself." Meanwhile, beginning March fifth, I was in lockdown, like many other white collar workers at home running my lab remotely so i didn't i didn't have to commute i didn't have much else to do so i said why don't i write this book so i sat down march the 15th approximately and i worked uh, 12 hours a day for 120 days in a row nonstop. and but but i didn't need to do a lot of original research because i was reading about the pandemic every night all the papers that were being put on preprint servers and i knew everything i needed to know i knew about public health i knew about contagion, I knew about networks, I knew about the history of epidemics. I mean, I kind of had the fund of knowledge I needed. And then I delivered the book to the editor July 15th, like four months later. Then it had to be edited and manufactured, which took a couple of months. And the book was physically printed on October 1st, uh, and then for sale and distributed like a two or three weeks later. And, and people asked me, has anything changed, you know, in the interval? And the answer is no. I mean, the, the, if you know enough about respiratory pandemics, there's not a single thing that's happening that's surprising. Uh, the only uh, thing that's novel, I would say about this is the fact that we are the first generation of people that can respond to a serious plague by developing a pharmaceutical countermeasure in real time. Yeah. You know, the fact that we have vaccines available is miraculous. Uh, and you know, 10 months or 12 months after the virus leapt to humans is miraculous and astonishing achievement of modern science. And, um, but when I wrote the book, it was obvious to me that we would have a vaccine by the first quarter of 2021. There were 150 initiatives. They were all based on very sound science. So in the book, I assumed we would have a vaccine by the first quarter of 2021. We're a little early. We're in December of 2020 when we have it, but not, not too early. And so, so the whole book is, I think, written. I think the book will, I hope, will stand the test of time. Yeah, well, uh, I'm sure, it, you know, obviously dig in plenty to that. But I think it's safe to say that for anyone uh, who's interested in the aspects of the virus we've been talking about, especially with respect to sociality and sort of like you've been talking about the history of, of epidemics, that sort of stuff. Very fascinating read. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that lots of people will find uh, a ton in that. So anyway, we're coming up on the end here and I want to be respectful of your time. So thanks for taking the time to talk today, Nicholas. Thanks, Cody. All right. Bye, Let Nicholas. me know when it's all uh, ready and I'll tweet it out or whatever. I'll be in touch. Uh, and thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Cody. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.
that was my conversation with Nicholas Christakis. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can subscribe to Cognitive Revolution on any platform you happen to be listening through. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce. You can also subscribe to my newsletter at codycommerce.com slash newsletter. So thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I will see you back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Thank you.